everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Charlotte, you introduced me to this case, and uh, going into it, I knew nothing. Honestly, we haven't covered something that has affected me emotionally like this in a long, long time. Yeah, this one is incredibly tragic. It's one of those cases that is just so sad. This never should have happened to this poor woman. And the fact that people are capable of something like this is never a fun reminder. I uh, I literally cried while writing the script. So uh, thanks for that. Yeah, there's a lot of definitely very heavy stuff about this case. Uh, we'll warn you a couple of times, but it's not going to be a fun ride today, guys. It has been a little while since we've covered an Australian crime. Uh, but it seems like they do really kind of, they tend to be the most brutal. Obviously, our Catherine Knight episode comes to mind. Oh, uh, definitely. She was a bad one. One of the many things that makes this case so terrifying is that the victim was not targeted. She was simply in the wrong place at the absolute worst time, and it resulted in her death. Today, we are covering the murder of Anita Cobby, an Australian nurse who was brutally assaulted and murdered by five men who just happened to see her walking home while they were driving around. Her murder outraged the public to the point where after the men were caught, tens of thousands of people attempted to push the government into reintroducing the death penalty just for them. And with all of that being said, we do want to warn you that this episode might not be for everyone, so please listen with caution. Anita Cobby was born Anita Lorraine Lynch on November 2nd, 1959 to Gary and Grace Lynch. She was a bright, loving little girl who from a young age found happiness in helping those around her. Even as a small child, she would tell anyone who listened to her how badly she wanted to be a nurse just like her mother, a dream that she would proudly achieve. She also won numerous beauty pageant titles and was often described as beautiful not just on the outside but on the inside as well. For a while, it appeared that she would have a very lucrative career as a model, but instead, like we said, she wanted to follow in her mother's footsteps and give more back to her community. She enrolled in the nursing program at Sydney Hospital, and this was where she met John Cobby in 1981. Anita took an instant liking to him, falling in love with his calming nature and sweet smile. A year later, the two were married in a small ceremony amongst family and friends. Unfortunately, trouble began to brew in the relationship three years after the two tied the knot. They didn't want to end the marriage, but after careful consideration, they decided that they should at least separate temporarily while they worked on themselves. And the time apart actually worked for them, and by late 1986, they were attempting to rekindle their romance. She was staying at her parents while the two tried to make things work from a small distance. Anita spent February 2nd, 1986, her last day alive, unaware that it would be any different from her usual routine. It was a Sunday, and she had spent the earlier part of the day working at the hospital. When her shift was over, she met with Annette Bradshaw and Elaine Bray, two co-workers, for some food at the Red Fern restaurant, which was very normal for her. By 8.30pm they had finished up, and Elaine offered Anita to stay at her house instead of going all the way to her parents since she lived close by. Anita politely declined, saying she was working a late shift the following day and she wanted to sleep in. Elaine drove her to the Central Railway Station, where she would take the train to Blacktown, the suburb that her parents called home. She arrived at around 10pm and planned to call her father to pick her up, which again was her usual routine. 
This was the 80s, so Anita had to rely on a payphone in order to get through to him. Strangely, that night, none of them were working and she had no way to contact him. She opted to take a taxi back to their house, but they were all busy, so she really had no choice but to walk home. It wasn't a very long journey, so she didn't mind and began walking through the residential streets. She had done this before and in her mind had no reason to be nervous. It was a safe area and she was more than familiar with the route she needed to take. Like we mentioned, this case truly is a terrifying example of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Moments prior, five men who were known to local authorities as troublemakers had stolen a Holden Kingswood. One of them was 19-year-old John Travers. John was the kind of guy who had always been a walking, talking, red flag of a human being. He had spent his life in Blacktown and had developed some bad habits from a young age. By 14 years old, he was a full-blown alcoholic. John also began carrying weapons with him everywhere he went from a young age, and it was clear that he wasn't afraid to use them to get exactly what he wanted. He spent a lot of time with the local police in and out of court. Most of his early teen years were spent at Boys Town, a center for young offenders. When he was home, he was forced to be the breadwinner for his family. He did this by stealing food and animals from local farmers. And speaking of animals... Oh no. John had a fondness for them, and not in the way you and I may think of. No, John preferred to physically and sexually abuse animals before violently ending their lives. He didn't seem to have a preference either. He was known to assault everything from chickens to sheep and more. So clearly not the kind of guy you wanted to meet while walking home in the middle of the night. Along with him was Michael Murdoch, a lifelong friend of John's who was always down to cause trouble with him. And then there were the Murphy brothers, Les, Gary, and Michael. All three had had various run-ins with the law and were known for having bad tempers. As they were driving around, they realized that they were all flat broke and needed some cash in order to continue their quote-unquote fun night. This was when they came up with the idea to find someone walking down the street and rob them. As they decided this, they saw Anita turn a corner. This was when their plans became something far more evil. The five men pulled up next to Anita Cobby as she was walking down the street. Two of them jumped out of the vehicle and grabbed her before she even knew what was happening. She screamed and attempted to fight them off, but she was no match for the five of them. This is truly every woman's nightmare. Oh my god, like, it, I cannot imagine. Anita's screams were heard by a teenage brother and sister who lived close by. They heard her screaming and ran outside to see what was happening, just in time to see her being forced into the vehicle. The brother actually ran towards the car and yelled at them to let her go. The two chased it until they could no longer see the car ahead of them. They then went to their mother, who called the police to report what had happened. As she was making this call, their older brother had shown up at the home. They told him what had happened, and he quickly realized the gravity of the situation and knew he had to try and help her. It didn't take long until he found the car his siblings had described. It was parked on the side of the road a few kilometers outside of Blacktown. It was parked in an area that was surrounded by thigh-high weeds. He got out of the car and approached the vehicle with a flashlight. However, it appeared to have been abandoned. He realized then that there wasn't much else he could do, so he decided to get back into his own vehicle and drive home. Tragically, Anita was only a few feet away. 
Her captors had taken her out of the vehicle and hidden down in the weeds. They stifled Anita's screams and they made her lay face down in the dirt until the boy left. Once they knew he was gone, they took her to a nearby field. Anita attempted to reason with them, saying that she was married. They told her that they didn't care. She then told them that she was on her period in an attempt to stop them from sexually assaulting her. It did not work. Instead, they beat her for not complying with their orders. They tore the clothing from her body, and when she was naked, they made her perform oral sex on all five of them as they continued to beat her. When they were done, they robbed her so that they could fuel their stolen car. Anita was then driven to a nearby paddock. They continued to assault her on the way there, and the abuse didn't stop when they got to where they were going. When they arrived at the paddock, Anita was so injured she was unable to move. They dragged her barely conscious body and dumped her nearby and continued to assault her further. This entire ordeal lasted almost two hours. As she lay there, beaten and terrified, she had to listen to them discuss what they were going to do with her next. They knew the chances of her surviving the attack were slim, but they didn't want to risk her identifying them if she did. She had seen all of their faces, heard their names, and would be able to identify them easily. It was John Travers who suggested that they end her life to protect themselves. Initially, the other four argued that they did not set out to kill anyone that night. Their intention was to assault her and dump her somewhere. John continued to argue with them and eventually convinced them that this plan was the best one. While they agreed, they told him that they wanted nothing to do with the actual murder. With that, John grabbed a knife and walked over to Anita. He then cut her throat with such force that her head was almost completely removed from her body. They then left her body where she had taken her last breaths without even attempting to cover up their crimes for whatever unlucky person would just discover her there in the morning. And then they just drove off. Her autopsy would later reveal severe internal damage from the sexual assault that she had endured. Not only that, she was covered with cuts and bruises all over her body. Her face was so badly beaten, she was almost unrecognizable. The report also showed that Anita had done her best to fight off the men. She had defensive wounds on her hands. On one hand, one of her fingers had been sliced to the bone from the tip to the bottom of her wrist. She was missing fingers on her other hand and the rest were completely broken. The group drove to John's house where they went through all of Anita's belongings, including her purse. They burned it along with the clothing that she had been wearing that night. This was witnessed by a neighbor who saw what they were doing through her window. She would later report a sickening smell to the police, saying it was unlike anything she had ever experienced before. While all of this was happening, Anita's parents were beyond worried. She had been due home hours ago, and it was not like her to stay out later than she said she would. Normally, if she was going to stay at a friend's, she would call and let them know. She wasn't someone who wanted people to worry about her. This next bit is a little bit odd, but it was reported by her father, Gary, afterwards. He stayed up waiting to see her come home, but eventually grew tired. He decided to look out of the window one last time in hopes of seeing her, when he saw something that he would never be able to explain. Gary claimed that as he looked out the window, his eyes were drawn to the sky. He watched a set of clouds pass over the moon. The clouds then merged together and formed what he described as a monstrous-looking face for a moment before it disappeared. He would later say that this was when he realized in his heart that something had happened to his daughter. 
If that isn't strange enough, Annette Bradshaw, who Anita had spent her final night with, also had a strange experience. She had long since fallen asleep, but around the same time that Gary saw the cloud formation, she experienced her own unexplainable event. In a half-asleep state, she claims that she heard Anita's voice. She talked to her for a moment but was sleepy, so she told Anita that they should both go to sleep and talk in the morning. To her surprise, the voice told her she wouldn't be at work the following day. The encounter ended with the voice saying, I won't be there, I'm dying. The shock of this caused Annette to shake herself out of her sleepy state. She looked over at the clock next to the bed and saw that it was slightly after 11 p.m. Anita's estimated time of death would later be determined to be between 11 and 11.30 p.m. That gives me chills. I, you know... I don't wish to put a supernatural element on that. this if that's not something you believe in, but her death was so incredibly heinous and violent. If there was some way that her fucking soul was crying out, it would be at this time. Absolutely. Oh, God. The next morning, the hospital phoned Anita's parents to inform them that she had not shown up to work as expected. She was normally never late and certainly wouldn't miss work without a valid reason, so they were instantly concerned. This was enough for her parents to go down to the police station and report her as missing. 24 hours after the report, the farmer who owned the land the paddock was on saw that his cattle were behaving strangely. They were all huddled around something. Well, the thing is about cows is they're super curious. Like, if you show up in their field, it won't be long before the entire herd just completely surrounds you. Like, if you're ever trying to hide from someone, a field of cows is not a good option. Because eventually they'll all just be stood around looking at you. Like, they will snitch on your ass. (laughs) There's your little uh, pro tip for the day. The farmer approached his cows and to his absolute shock and horror, he found the badly beaten body of Anita her disfigured hands still clutching the grass that had been around her. He immediately called the police and told them something that makes this case so much more tragic. As if we needed that. The farmer explained to them that he had actually heard the screams coming from the fields that night and it had sounded like a woman. He chose not to investigate because it was normal for teenagers to sneak off into the fields by his house to party And he kind of just assumed it was some kids being rowdy. This bothers me so much. Oh, the the pit in my stomach every time. On one hand, we have an entire family who tried to help her when she was being taken. And then we have someone who really could have stopped this from happening. He could have scared them away. Like, I understand it would have been five to one and he may have been put at risk, but he could have done something. He could have at least called the police. I can't even imagine the feeling of guilt afterwards. This, like I said, it makes my stomach drop every time I hear about this part. If you think you've heard something or seen something weird, please tell someone or do something. When I was in college, I had to call 911 because of some fucking sus shit outside of my apartment. It did turn out to be fine. But in the end, I'm glad I didn't spend my, the rest of my life wondering or, like, finding something horrible happened later. This guy, he didn't know. It wasn't his fault. And I can't imagine the guilt mm-hmm. that stayed with him. But you, if you see something, say something, Absolutely. guys. Especially if you hear someone screaming in your field. Like, do something about yeah. it. Yeah. The police quickly pieced together that the woman who was just reported missing could be the same as the one that was found in the field they were able to identify Anita by her wedding band. Her body was taken to the morgue and her father was called to officially identify her. 
Ian Kennedy, who is the detective sergeant on the case, would later say that He started sobbing like my father. You know what I mean? He felt sorry for him. So I just grabbed him like a dad and just gave him a cuddle. Oh, man. This is a full disclosure. When I was writing the script, this is where I cried. Uh, yeah, this, <laughs> it fucking gets me. Yep. This poor man. Because what other choice do you have? You have yeah. to identify her. Oh, okay. So, like with most murder cases, the police instantly saw her husband, John Cobby, as the prime suspect. After all, they were estranged at the time. They interrogated him for hours on end until he finally confessed that it had been him who had killed Anita Cobby. That's right, folks. They pushed him so hard that they got a false confession from him. Poor guy. Man, I understand that people were rightfully outraged and shaken by this fucking senseless and heinous crime. The police were under extremely high pressure to find this perpetrator, and I, I can't imagine the stress they were under. But you can't just be flying into investigations like this. Holy shit. Can you imagine if John Cobby spent the rest of his life in prison and they never found the original five? And he could have. Oh, man. Like, ugh. It wasn't until days into the investigation that they realized that the crimes committed against Anita were done by multiple people and that none of the DNA on her matched John. He was then let go. A reward that would be equivalent to $150,000 was posted for information regarding the murder. It wasn't long until the media had heard about what had happened. It was being reported on various TV and radio stations. John Laws, a local radio host, was somehow able to get the autopsy records and they were read live on the air. Man, this is unacceptable for so many fucking reasons, but it caused... So much havoc, this. Honestly, I think at the end of the day, it sounds terrible. I don't think this should have happened. I think this is wildly inappropriate. But the public outrage that happened because of this, I think is one of the reasons that this case ends the way that it does. 100%. I have to agree with you there. I don't think it was his right to release that information. You know, it was really her family's call. Yeah. In my mind, there was sort of a loss of dignity there in that sense. But like you say, it caused people to be like, what the fuck? And because of it, their sentences, because spoiler alert, they do get fucking caught. Thank goodness. Um, That's the one thing. While you're listening to this and thinking about how terrible it is, this is a story with justice. Very much Thank so. God. Yeah. Okay. So when listeners heard uh, how vicious the attack had been, the majority of them not only wanted to find these killers, they wanted to find them personally and get their own justice for Anita. Not only that, the public began filing petitions and calling their local politicians demanding that capital punishment be brought back into their judicial system just for this case. They not only wanted to see these men punished, they wanted each one of them dead and quick. Before long, tips began coming in. It was mentioned by many people that a group of car thieves had been spotted causing trouble. The name John Travers came up again and again. It was a tip from a police informant that finally gave them enough to start an official search for the men. On February 21st, John Travers and Michael Murdoch were arrested and charged with offenses related to the theft of the car. While he was being questioned, Travers made various statements regarding the murder that made absolutely no sense. He then asked them to call a friend of his to bring him cigarettes. This friend ended up being his aunt. She arrived at the station and visited him in his cell. 
They spoke for a while, and it wasn't long before she was convinced that he had been involved. She went straight to the detectives who were on the case and told them that she believed he had murdered Anita. The detectives believed her, but they knew her words wouldn't be enough, so they came up with a plan. She returned to his cell with a hidden recording device in her bra. She was able to get a full confession from Travers about the murder he had committed. And honestly, it didn't take a lot of prodding from her. He was more than willing to give her a shocking play-by-play of what had happened. He told her the full story, stopping at certain parts to chuckle to himself. Before long, she had everything they needed on tape. The thing that continuously blows my mind while talking about this case is John Travers is 19 years old. I know. This is not a grown-ass man, so to speak. He is, but he's still a teenager, technically. He was this fucking cold and vicious and cruel at 19. To be like that at 19, I personally, I think if he hadn't murdered Anita, it wasn't going to be long until he had killed somebody. I think whoever it was that they found that night was going to die, whether they fully intended it first or not. I couldn't agree more. Before his aunt left his cell, he told her that if she didn't keep her mouth shut, the same thing would happen to her. She then went to see Michael Murdoch and Les Murphy and obtained a recorded confession from them as well. Once she had done this, all five men were wanted for the murder of Anita Cobby. The Murphy brothers attempted to go into hiding, but police set up blockades around areas they were known to frequent. It didn't take long until they were picked up one by one. The last Murphy brother to be found was Gary. He saw the police approaching the house he was hiding and attempted to flee out the back door. I believe the Murphy brothers, um, as much as there were three of them in this particular case, I think they came from a pretty big family. There was like nine of them or something like that. Can you imagine as their parents, three of your nine kids have now gone to jail for life for this heinous fucking act? Those aren't good odds. They're really not good odds. Holy shit. Gary Murphy was tackled to the ground by police when they stood him up and handcuffed him. He immediately pissed his pants. And dear listeners, there's a picture of him being led away with a giant pee stain on him looking all shameful and scared. And we're going to be sharing that with you because that's how this piece of rotting human garbage deserves to be remembered. Fucking cowards, every last one of them. Michael Murdoch was the last to be arrested. At the time of the arrest, the five men had over 50 prior convictions for various crimes between them, including theft, assault, drug use, and sexual crimes. I just don't know how five people like this find each other. Right? I mean, this is a terrible, terrible group of people. I do just want to point out that all of this was a mere 22 days after she was killed. We've talked a lot about less than great police investigations, but this was not one of those. The officers involved in this case were commended for their quick work. As to be expected, the five men turned on each other immediately once they were in custody. They all had different versions of the story, but all of them agreed on one fact. John Travers had not only come up with the idea to kill Anita Cobby, he was the one that committed the terrible act. And John Travers was never put to trial because he pleaded guilt because he pled guilty immediately and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Just like our old pal Catherine Knight. The trial for the other four began on March 16, 1987. The men showed absolutely no remorse for the crimes and were often seen chatting with each other and laughing as their charges were read to them. 
All four men were found guilty and sentenced to serve their lives in prison. At no point did any of them show remorse for what they had done. And my question is again, how did five absolute psychopaths find each other like this? Like, we hear of pairs of killers or even siblings or cousins and things like that. But five and three of them being brothers? You're telling me... Not one of these little fuckers thought, hey guys, maybe let's not do the most heinous shit we can think of. Right, like, I mean, I can picture five guys riding around in a stolen car, like, just causing trouble. That's one thing. Yeah, boys in the bright white sports car. Right, there you go. Whatever. But to have it lead to this is just, I, it's beyond imagination. It really is. I think John Travers is a fucking psychopath and the other four were just fucking stupid, cowardly followers on. Yeah, and you know what? You're gonna hear us like we're mad. We're mad about this. This oh, is and if you're not, fucking have a word with yourself. Yeah, seriously. If you're not, go listen to this all over again and join us back here in a little bit, because <laughs> it's bad. So bad that Justice Alan Maxwell spoke about the crimes afterwards, saying it was one of the most horrifying physical and sexual assaults. This was a calculated killing done in cold blood. The executive should grant the same degree of mercy they bestowed upon their victim. Michael Murphy died in 2019 of liver cancer. Good. The rest of the men are still alive and incarcerated. While Michael was alive, he wrote to numerous politicians asking for protection from the other prisoners who would have been happy to tear him apart. Fucking coward. And honestly, needless to say, none of them have had a great time in prison. This same year his brother died, Gary Murphy was found badly beaten in the prison showers to the point where he was sent to the hospital in critical condition. I'm not mad about that. Honestly, whatever state he was in, it was less than he fucking deserved. I I hope they broke all of his fucking fingers and toes. As for John Cobby, he attempted to continue on with his life. He remarried, but that relationship was doomed from the start. He never stopped loving Anita and he blamed himself for not being there to protect her. After all, if they had never separated, the series of events that led to Anita walking down that road would have never happened. Anita's father, Gary, never recovered from the loss of his daughter. The face he saw in the clouds that night she was killed haunted him until his death in 2008. Her mother passed away in 2013, but the two had worked together with the parents of another murder victim named Ebony Simpson to create the Homicide Victim Support Group. Not only that, they petitioned to seek tougher sentencing and new laws to ensure men like the five that were involved with the death of their daughter would get as little mercy from the law as possible. I have to say one thing about Australian law is they're tough. And I think they should be. I think about how this case would have been treated in Canada, for instance. Yeah, it honestly doesn't bear thinking about based on what we know about cases that are similar that have happened here. Yep. And dear listeners, that is the story of the murder of Anita Cobby. I don't think I really need to ask you how you're feeling about this case. Not feeling good, Charlotte. (laughs) Not good. (sighs) This is one of those cases that it stays with you. Anita Cobby died a horrible death because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time and five pieces of shit just happened to find her. Again, I'm glad that the Australian justicism doesn't mess around, that they were given such harsh sentences, but I honestly think that the public wouldn't have given them a choice not to. This is an incredibly sad case. I don't think I need to say it, but the world got 
a little bit darker when those five did what they did to Anita Cobby. Her death was unimaginably cruel and completely senseless. The fact that not one of them has shown any remorse tells me they don't belong on this planet with the rest of us. They can rot in prison and they can rot in hell after that. <laughs> and I hope they're having a terrible time. Same. And they're not going to get out. They're going to die there, which is great. Yeah, no parole for those fuckwits. Yep. I think about Catherine Knight. We're going to compare this case again because it is Australian. She is serving the same sentence, but she's having a good time in prison. She's Nana. She's having a great time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know how I feel about that either, but yeah, these these four that are left, not having a good time. Now with that, on a much more positive note, we want to say our thank you to our lovely, lovely, lovely patrons. You're amazing. And you are Bob, Lisa, Atlantean Jedi, Brian, Hillary, Judy, Kevinus Musicus, and Mayhem Mudkip. Thank you for being so wonderful. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Y'all are the titty city, the bees, knees, the cats, pajamas. And actually, you know what, guys? If you're listening and you have any other of those phrases, please send them in. I want more to say. I love it. I love those (laughs) phrases. I want to hear more. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure there's some creative ones out there. Um, I don't think we got any other news for today, do we? No, we don't. Honestly, like, we appreciate you guys all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, give us five stars, whatever you can. It means a lot. Share it with your friends, your enemies, your dog, whoever. We just appreciate all the love. And uh, and as terrible as it was, we're glad that you were there to take this ride with us. 100%. We have some plans for 2024 that we're very excited and looking forward to. So stay tuned for all of that. That all being said, thank you so much for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. All right, Charlotte, I debated for a long time about the fact that I wanted to share because I think I just wanted something a little bit more upbeat. And I wanted to tell you today that some turtles breathe out of their butts. Oh, <laughs> I did not know that. Bye. Thank you for sharing. Bye. That's hilarious. <laughs>